This is the eighth Sunday after Epiphany, and we continue the major theme of the season, which is the ways and the means that you and I seek to make presence uh, or make manifest God to the world, God to ourselves with regard to our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, and how we understand that. And then the, the subtext, or the, the major theme this week, is the non-anxious presence. All of the readings have something to do with what it is, how we understand it, and its centrality and importance for relational health, for spiritual health, for mental health, and for emotional health. So I'm going to say some things about the non-anxious presence, and then I'm, I'm going to preach on the, all three readings. Isaiah first, then the gospel, out of order, and then Paul, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the way you and I most of the time make manifest the non-anxious presence and God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness, and that is when we're in some uh, species of leadership in big and small ways in our life. And Paul is talking about a particular kind of leadership that I believe is congenial with regard to how we understand uh, the expression of the non-anxious presence. You and I live in a culture that is chronically anxious. Some people may say, well, what is new? You know, that's always been so, maybe to some extent. But there are some things going on in this culture which I don't know whether we could say are unique, but certainly ratcheted up the anxiety level in a way that um, I certainly remember as a kid um, I didn't see in as much of as we see now. It could also mean that I'm getting older and uh, you tend to be more anxious. It's hard to know that. I think one of the things, for example, is the pace of change. And when I stop to think about the things that have gone on in my life and even my family's life, my grandfather, when he was born in 1888, think of the things he saw before he died in 1975. And so there's been uh, an escalation of that kind of thing. I mean, I said this at, at the 9 o'clock uh, sermon, you know, uh, probably in less time than this, but in another 10, there'll be no more newspapers. They'll be gone. No newspapers, you know? And... There would be a lot of reasons why we could explain uh, that that's a good thing, maybe even a positive development, but I can assure you that this culture will not mourn their passing to the degree that they should. I, I try to affect this pose about being somewhat technologically apt. <laughs> All my stuff is eating its young, you know. You've got to keep, keep getting the stuff, you know, to do whatever... Ever you do. There's some very positive things about that too, and yet in some ways it can produce kind of anxiousness or sort of shifting sands. You know, the situation on the ground is fluid. So we have to contend with a certain type of anxiety, and in every age it's the case, and the Savior will talk about this in Matthew's Gospel today about anxiety over material things. What's new, right? So it seems that we've had this for a long time. But first, we need a predicate, a thing to establish 
about our default position as Christian people with regard to where God is in this. It was actually given to us in the collect. Most loving Father, whose will it is for us to give thanks for all things, to fear nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all our care on you who care for us, preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal, and which you have manifested to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we believe in God's abiding care, and that we understand as we seek to know his purpose for us, there is created some element of reciprocity with regard to this, how we respond to this divine initiative, this idea of caring. Today in Isaiah, we hear from the Isaiah of the return from exile. Remember, I've mentioned to you that in biblical scholarship, there's the view that suggests that there were three Isaiahs. So this Isaiah is the Isaiah that was writing at the return of the people from Babylon in exile. And now here's the thing to reflect on. How do we, as the people of God who have experienced the liberating power of God, God who has returned us through his generosity to the city Jerusalem, what kind of a city do we want to rebuild and to have? How should we understand our relational life one to another? What do we mean when we speak about God's healing, restorative purposes at work in the lives of the community and at work in our own personal life on our interior, emotional, spiritual, and mental states? And how do we now wish to model this to the world? Because we have an inkling now that God has in mind not just to see us thrive, but to see all the people of God thrive, which includes people who are not the people of the covenant, that all people are being called into God's saving embrace. And this healing restorative work that is at work in the hearts of all faithful people must have some expression in relationship and bring health to relationship. And so the very knowledge of this the very emotional response that the people of God felt was, we must in some way be less anxious than we were before. We must feel some species of confidence that God is present to us no matter what, even if we cannot see it or feel it at any given moment or time, that God is very near to each one of us. You know? The Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So Isaiah tells us this today. He also uses an image which is not common in the Old Testament, but it's more common than people have paid attention to. And one of the good things about the revised common lectionary Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Isaiah is speaking here not of Jerusalem, where the female imagery is all over the Old Testament. 
He's speaking of God. He's speaking of Yahweh, reflecting these traits, this nurturing care. And so Isaiah is saying, if that's true, we ought to be able to reflect that back to the world too and see the, the sort of fully orbed, orbed quality of God, the nature of God, capable of that kind of nurture and care. So as we get to talking about the non-anxious presence and what is there, we realize, of course, that God is present to us in the midst of all this, even when you feel anxious as all get out. Jesus continues today in uh, Matthew's Gospel through the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking uh, in biblical scholarly terms of the higher righteousness, his new teaching on the Torah, in his ministry, in his words, and in his works. He embodies the new law, the law of love, and he says some things to us about how God looks after the creation that God made and called good. And he's speaking today about anxiety with regard to our personal possessions, with regard to our future, with regard to how we think we, we, we need to be in control of events and are not, and that makes us anxious. You know, a source of anxiety for all human beings is that very fact. We're not omniscient, omnipotent, and immortal. I'm just frustrate, frustrated as all get out that that is so. Right? But there it is. And so we live in a condition of powerlessness. We are powerless over people, places, and things. Most of us don't want to feel that or think that is true. And so we labor and sometimes become sick or crazy because we can't get there. And Jesus is really speaking about that today. Jesus is not saying we ought not to be concerned about our possessions. He's not saying that uh, they're evil. He's saying when they occupy their normal place in a healthy life, it is appropriate to be good stewards of those things and concerned about them and to pay attention to them. But all of us know what it feels like and see it in the wider culture when people have an overweening concern for material possessions. I think where you see it most baldly is in the acquisitiveness of this culture. You know? Augustine used to speak of a quality in human beings that we call concupiscence. And you know what concupiscence is? It's restlessness. It's just, I'm not, something's wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not content. I had a guy say once to me when I was talking to him, he says, you know, I'm having, I have figured out that all of my life's difficulties right at this particular moment could be solved if I had a midnight blue Lexus. You know, I'm lying there in the bed and I think to myself, that could be the solution to all my anxiety and difficulty. A midnight blue Lexus, you know. I think this is what the Savior's driving at in this particular case. You and I are not called to live lives of total renunciation. 
Some people are called to live lives of total renunciation, and they model for us certain characteristics and spiritual qualities that are noble and good. But most of us, tomorrow at 8 a.m., are not going to renounce all of our stuff. So we have to learn how to have right relationship with our stuff. That's the, that's the truth of the matter. And the whole of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in one sense, is about how we do that. But it is also about, particularly in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, it is about the abundance of the creation and that there is enough. One of the reasons we're in a chronically anxious culture is for the last three or four years, it has appeared that there is not enough. And we are going through a very bad situation at the present moment. In many people's lives, they're in great economic upheaval. And there are forces at work in our culture who are vested in making sure that we all believe and feel that there is scarcity. That there is not enough. The Bible says there is enough. This is not some pious sentiment. It isn't some kind of Pollyanna-ish view of the world where you and I think, oh, well, God is going to provide. It has to do with how we respond to the divine initiative and become responsible people in all aspects of our life. But it may also have to do with somehow how we see in the relational life of the wider culture some things that could be healed and repaired and restored and made more generous. There's nothing wrong with that. Nobody's died from too much generosity. It's not fatal. So Matthew was speaking about that today. How we understand this and we believe that God in some way does provide. Just before in chapter 6, we didn't read, he gives, he delivers to us the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That that petition is something we, we ask when we pray the Lord's Prayer. I hope you pray that prayer at least once a day uh, to yourself. It's a good prayer. So here we have Paul. We've been told about God's abiding care. We've been told that uh, being too anxious about things is just simply not, doesn't do any good. One of the things, by the way, that Jesus also said at the end of today's gospel was you need to be present in the now. Don't think too much about the future. Think about today and the challenges today. Tomorrow will bring its own uh, set of anxieties. That may have something to say, particularly to those who are big planners. You know, planning. Planning is important. People and institutions need to plan. But sometimes, as Albert Collins, the great blues guy, would say, they have too much planning going on. You need to be a little more present to what's going on now because the future is whatever it is. So that wasn't a commercial message for no planning, but I all know, I've known a lot of people in my life who have planned themselves into a cul-de-sac, you know? I always kid when some couple calls me up and want to get married here and, 
and they say, uh, and we would like to talk to you about that, see what they said. I go, oh, great, I'd love to see you. Let's make an appointment to meet. When did you want to get married? Oh, we want to get married in May of 2013. <laughs> I said, you must be planners. <laughs> and most of the time they say, that's right, we are. We, we are. We're planning. Well... As Father Hunt used to say it in the show at a house, you could do that if you want to. But Jesus said, you know, ease up on the planning a little bit. It's a way of trying to control things, isn't it? And you know what? That sometimes isn't the best way to operate. And I think the Bible supports that particular view. Paul today is talking about leadership. Leadership is the location where the non-anxious presence is the most effective. You know, some people think the non-anxious presence, what will it, what is it, what do you do uh, to have the non-anxious presence? I'll get to that in a minute. But some people say, well, the non-anxious presence is just going like my brother, it'll be fine. Well, it's okay if that works, because it will be fine. Ultimately, that's what Julianne of Norwich told us in her writings but maybe it's something a little more than that. Here's the situation on the ground in Corinth. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about their leadership and about their views of his leadership and the other missionaries who have come through the Corinthian church. And many of the leaders that are there believe that um, it's important... uh, They have arrived spiritually. They are in a position to know all there is to know about spiritual wisdom. So they're judging Paul and his confreres on the basis of this having arrived at knowledge about what it is you're supposed to do. And they have particular ideas about the nature of the leadership. Here's what this has spawned. Dissension, party spirit, strife, the idolization of leaders, and in all probability from what he suggests today, that their idea of leadership is somebody who is a world-class over-functioner. Right? This is the kind of leadership that we want to hold up. Paul is holding up a model of leadership that we would say today uh, is... Collaborative, servant-driven, and mutually accountable. It's a, good, it's a good model, not just for the church. Collaborative, servant-driven, mutually accountable. He keeps reminding them, you know, quit thinking that I'm the guy who hung the moon or Apollos hung the moon or Chloe's people hung the moon. We're here to serve God. We're all here to serve God. We are the most successful at doing this when we collaborate, when we're mutually accountable, and we see see ourselves as giving back to God. And all of us should operate on that basis. That's what he's suggesting. So you might say to yourself, well, how would that look? What would you do to be non-anxious? I thought I'd read you some of these things. 
Here's something that leadership, though, before that, should always know, in my opinion, and it's something we have the hardest time uh, learning. This is from uh, Rabbi Edwin Friedman, who, uh, this is probably his most famous quotation. The colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. Communication does not depend on syntax or eloquence or rhetoric or articulation, but on the emotional context in which the message is being heard. People can only hear you when they're moving towards you, and they are not likely to when your words are pursuing them. Even the choicest words lose their power when they are used to overpower. Attitudes are the real figures of speech. That's good advice to any preacher, I must say. And I think it's good advice to anybody uh, in leadership. So the non-anxious presence might look like, what do you do? Well, one of the things you do is to manage your own natural reactions. You use knowledge to suppress impulses and control automatic reactions. The reptilian brain. All of us have the reptilian brain, you know, down there. And that's what we revert to when we get worried and nervous. Keep calm for the purpose of reflection and conversation. Observe what is happening, especially to one's self. Tolerate high degrees of uncertainty, frustration, and pain. And maintain a clear sense of direction. A lot of this is counterintuitive, you know. A lot of studies have been done. Successful leaders are the people who are able to tolerate pain in other people. Have a higher threshold of toleration of pain in others. And so sometimes if they're successful, they're called cold and unfeeling or dictatorial or tyrannical. And usually, if, you, if this is done the way it's intended, uh, you move things in a positive direction. The thing I like about this is that Ed Friedman and the people who have been doing this for a long time now uh, talk about this in such a way as to say, I'm right about this 70% of the time. The most successful marriage is symptom-free 70% of the time. Now, that may sadden many. I'm, I rejoice that at least 70% of the time you might be on track, and that means 30% of the time even the people that are at the best at this are symptomatic. And so that means that we're a work in progress, doesn't it? It means that somehow when we understand the exercise of leadership, it's important to be, like Paul says, servant-driven because we have a certain degree of humility about our own uh, foibles. 
about our own shortcomings, that our eyes are wide open. Clarity of communication and self-understanding never hurts. Maybe initially. And then you begin to see its benefits. So this week, think about God's abiding care and unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Think about the abundance of the creation. Think about a God who addresses all lack. Think about being an instrument of God's purposes through the practice of the non-anxious presence. Amen.